0: This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author chris lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include Strong Language Mature Themes And sexual attraction to both a woman and her mother. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, a weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is Episode 232. Hey there, folks! Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City story universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you, and keep you informed on my life and my writing. More about that later in the show. For now, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 5 of my erotic fantasy novel, Homecoming. If you're new to the show. Go back to episode 228 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. John and Kate have been invited to Kate's parents' house for Metacama, the Empire's national holiday of remembrance and thanksgiving. While John is looking forward to a week long vacation with Kate, away from any outside responsibilities, he's also feeling a considerable amount of trepidation. John has never met Kate's parents before and Kate hasn't told them that he is an incubus, or that he is a priest of the Church of Hedonism, or that he was thrown out of his noble house in disgrace when his infernal heritage was exposed. John has issues when it comes to family, and Metakema seems designed to bring all those uncomfortable feelings back to the surface. In the week since they received the invitation, Kate has done her best to prepare John— Briefing him on her family as if they were planning a high-stakes military operation. But John realizes that, like most people, Kate has some blind spots where her parents are concerned. Kate is convinced that her mother, Lisa, is desperately boring. She works in real estate, tends her garden, plays with her dog, helps out at her church, and that's about it. Whatever adventurous streak led her to move to the city all those years ago... Kate thinks it's long gone now. But John has another perspective. Deep down, he says, nobody is boring. The ones who look boring are just hiding the most interesting parts of themselves, either from the world, because they think they won't be accepted, or from themselves. John is willing to bet that lisa has got something adventurous about her right now, and Kate has just never noticed it. Kate is willing to take that bet by the end of the week, if he can find one thing about Lisa's life that isn't safe, boring, and normal, he wins. The loser buys them New Year's Eve dinner at the Panoramic. As they arrive in Kate's hometown of Bridger Heights, they pass by Kate's old high school. The week leading up to Metacama coincides with the school's homecoming celebration, which includes a parade, a skyball game against a neighboring school, an alumni banquet, and a formal dance. Kate is excited to go to the game, and John agrees to come with her, if she will come with him to the dance. Kate is hesitant, because she has too many unpleasant memories of awkward dances as a teenager. Fortunately, John is an excellent dance instructor, and he promises to make her look good. Homecoming A Tale of Metamore City Written in Red by Chris Lester. Chapter 5 They followed the nav software through a couple more turns, and finally arrived at their destination. The Katane's house was a split-level building of variegated brick and light brown wooden siding, surrounded by trees and ornamental gardens. A cobblestone path led from the driveway up to a broad front porch, where two white wicker chairs sat on either side of a small table. The front door was painted a slightly incongruous dark purple, with a knob of gleaming brass, and framed by two narrow lines of small, rectangular windows. Larger windows adorned the ground floor on the right side of the house, probably a living room, but a set of gauzy curtains concealed it from view. John wasn't an expert on suburban architecture, but he had the impression that the house was a little dated, though it was obviously well cared for. John parked the skimmer and turned off the engine, then flipped down his visor to check his appearance in the mirror. He looked mostly like himself, but his horns and tail were absent, and he had changed his skin to a light bronze tone. Instead of amber, his eyes were a soft brown, the color of coffee with cream. He brushed a few rogue strands of hair out of his eyes, turned to Kate, and flashed a smile. How do I look? Kate answered the smile with one of her own, a mixture of warm affection and unvarnished desire sparkling in her eyes. She leaned forward and kissed him lightly on the lips. Good enough to eat, she purred, but safely human. John felt a twinge of discomfort at the words. Safely human. Because being an incubus marked him as a threat. Incubi and succubi were relatively common in Metamore City, and John could usually go about his business without fear of persecution. Here in the provinces, he would likely provoke a more negative reaction. It rankled him, knowing that he had to pass as normal to be accepted. Part of him wanted to flaunt his fiendish heritage, to dare the bigots to say something to his face. But that wouldn't be fair to Kate, or her parents. Regardless of how her relationship with John turned out in the long run, Kate had to get along with these people, and her folks had to live here. John didn't want to make things harder for them. You were damned lucky to find a woman who loves you for who you are, he told himself. You can do this much for her. She's worth it. He slipped a hand behind Kate's head and caressed the back of her scalp watched the shiver of pleasure run down her spine. He kissed her again, harder, and closed his fist in her hair as he did so. Kate moaned against his mouth, then put her hands to his chest and lightly pushed him away. "'Please don't make me walk up to my parents' front door in a pair of wet panties,' she said, with a tone of mock exasperation. "'Come on, we'll have time for this later.' "'Whatever the lady wants,' John said, still grinning. They got out together, retrieved their luggage from the tiny back seat, and headed for the front door. John could hear the dog barking all the way from the driveway, a loud, booming string of staccato woof woof woofs. He looked up to the windows by the front door, which were now filled by a shaggy mountain of fur and muscle. The dog looked like a dire wolf's slightly smaller cousin with a dark sable coat, small triangular ears that rounded at the tips, and a ruff that stood out like a lion's mane. The massive plume of a tail swished back and forth, high in the air, but John thought it was a display of wariness rather than enthusiasm. "'Hi, Miko,' Kate said, pitching her voice into that upper register that people used with pets and babies. "'It's me! Hi, sweet boy!' Miko did not stop barking, but his tail started to wag faster. A moment later, he was joined in the window by a short, middle-aged man, with olive skin, salt-and-pepper hair, a large and fleshy-looking nose, and small, dark-brown eyes. His wide mouth split into a white-toothed grin as he saw Kate. John heard a deadbolt lock slide open, and the man opened the door. Miko ducked his head out to look under the man's arm, still barking, but otherwise did not move. "Hello!" the man called, his smile taking in Kate and John together. His voice was high, but strong. John imagined he would make a fine tenor. "Welcome, welcome!" "Hey, Dad!" Kate left her suitcase at the front of the porch and ran up to swallow him in a hug. Kate's lean one hundred and eighty centimeter frame dwarfed her stepfather, who couldn't have been more than a hair over one hundred sixty. Weathered hands wrapped around Kate's puffy jacket and squeezed her hard. John grabbed Kate's suitcase and his free hand and carried them both up the steps to the front door. By the time he got there, Miko had stopped barking, and was meticulously sniffing Kate's jeans and calf high leather boots. The dog's shoulders came up to her waist, and John quietly took note of his muscular chest and hindquarters, and the jaws that could wrap around his whole forearm with little trouble. John liked dogs, and especially big dogs, but this was Miko's territory, and that would make him wary of a stranger entering his house. John did not want to risk making a bad first impression. He hung back from the two humans, waiting his turn to be recognized. Kate and Sam Katane parted after a moment more, and the man gave his daughter a quick up-and-down glance, as if he could judge her general well-being from one look. Then he turned his attention to John and bowed, smiling warmly. Hi, John. Sam Katane. It's a pleasure to meet you. John returned the bow and consciously made it a little deeper than Sam's. The pleasure is sincerely mine, sir. Thank you for the invitation. Sam clapped a hand on John's shoulder. Of course. Miko, be nice now. This last was because the dog had started sniffing John, and was pressing his nose firmly to the fabric of John's jeans. John let his hand fall to his side, then extended his knuckles slightly in Miko's direction, giving the dog the option of smelling his skin without reaching for him. After a moment, Miko did so, his cold, wet nose snuffling against John's hand. Miko let out a soft woof, as if unconvinced, then turned and strode back into the house. Just ignore him and he'll get used to you soon enough, Sam said. Come on in, it's freezing out here. They entered the foyer, which had closets along the left side, a doorway to the living room to the right, and a staircase directly ahead, which led up to a balcony on the second floor. A smaller corridor to the left of the staircase went straight back to the rear of the house. John could see Miko's fluffy tail retreating in that direction. A chandelier hung from the ceiling in front of the balcony, filling the room with soft, warm light. "'Can I take your bags there?' Sam asked. "'I'll just put them up in your room.' "'Dad, you don't have to do that,' Kate said." in the tone of someone who knew she'd already lost the argument. Nonsense, Sam said genially. Go say hi to your mother. She's in the kitchen. I'll join you in a minute. He smiled up at John, extending his hands for the bags. John handed him the smaller of the two suitcases. Tell you what, I'll meet you halfway. You get this one, I'll get the other one. That's fair enough, Sam agreed. He started up the stairs, and John followed. Kate nodded her approval to John, then followed Miko to the back of the house. So, what do you do, John? Sam asked, as they reached the top of the stairs. It was the question John had been dreading, and the one for which he had spent the most time rehearsing his answer. Fortunately, John had a lot of practice in using the truth to create false impressions. I'm a community outreach specialist for a nonprofit group, he said smoothly. I track down leads and prospective partners, share our mission with them, build relationships, that sort of thing. Nice, Sam said, appreciatively. Is that how you met Katie? Sort of. From the balcony, narrow hallways extended straight ahead, toward the back of the house, and to the left, out over the garage. They followed the left passage about three meters, passing a study on the left and a bathroom in linen closets on the right— then around a right turn that led toward the back of the house. Ahead of them, the passage again turned to the right, where John presumed it would join up with the other hallway to create a single loop around the upper level. It was my sister who introduced us originally. She met Kate during a case back in April. I take it you heard about Kate getting a commendation from the magistrates? Yes, Sam said. She couldn't tell us much about it, though. Imperial security, I guess and I can't say much either, John agreed. Not least because I don't want to explain what Kate was doing at a hedonist temple. But we started seeing each other after that, and we hit it off pretty fast. Well, good. Sam gestured to the bedroom on the left, and John followed him inside. The guest room may have been Kate's bedroom once, but there wasn't much of her personality on display there. John saw a queen-sized bed with a rustic-looking quilt, a small end table with a lamp and a few old magazines, and two mismatched armchairs, which looked like they had been relocated from other parts of the house after some long-ago renovation. The walls featured a bookshelf stuffed with photo albums, posters of dogs and wolves, scenic landscape prints superimposed with quotes from the Canticle of Eli, and a photo collage of what John guessed were Kate's childhood years. John leaned in close to examine it. Pictures of a brown-haired toddler were juxtaposed with images of a grinning middle schooler with braces, a lanky teenager in a skyball uniform, and a nearly-grown Kate in a graduation cap and gown, posing next to a shiny new swoop. Interspersed among the images of Kate were pictures of three different dogs— all of whom were large, powerful, and vaguely wolfish in appearance, at least in their adult years. The Catane's other children, John thought wryly. Sam set down the suitcase on the bed, then took a half step back and nodded once to himself. He clasped his hands over his slightly rounded stomach, then bounced on his heels a couple of times. So there's a bathroom for your use, just down the hall, he said looking vaguely around the room as he spoke. We put in new granite countertops, so be sure to wipe up any water so it doesn't leave spots on the sink. Our bedroom is over on the other side of the house, and it's pretty well soundproofed, so uh, you won't have to worry about listening to me snore. He punctuated this with a short, nervous laugh. John laughed with him, because otherwise his jaw would have dropped open. Suspira's tits, he thought in wonder. Your daughter is having sex, and you have no idea how to talk about it. Sam wasn't worried about his snoring. He was trying to reassure John that he and Kate would have a measure of privacy, except that he apparently thought parents had to pretend to be oblivious about the activities of their own adult children. It's lovely, thank you, John said. He exited the room and started heading back the way they had come, and Sam quickly moved to follow him. Did you and Lisa build this place yourself? Sam chuckled (laughs) self-consciously. Oh, no, we had a contractor. But we've done a lot of renovations over the years. It saves money, and I'd like to think we do a better job, since we have to live with the results. And it feels good to work with your hands. I'll take your word for it, John said. Back at the foyer, he took the little hallway where Miko and Kate had gone earlier. He passed a steel door, which probably led to the garage, and a pantry and a half-bath to the left and right, and emerged into the kitchen. The back half of the Catain's house had a semi-open floor plan. The kitchen counters, sink, and appliances lined two walls, and an island in the center of the room was divided into a prep counter, on the left, and a breakfast bar with four bar stools, on the right. To the right of the breakfast area was a back door, with coat hangers and a rubber-lined tray for muddy boots, and a large dining room beyond that, with an expanding table that could fit a dozen people with ease. The back wall of the house was covered in large windows, one of which had a padded bench built into the wall in front of it to create a cozy little reading nook. Miko lay on an enormous dog bed next to the island. His big brown eyes surveying the room with relaxed but watchful attention. Kate sat on the bar stool nearest to the dog, hunched forward with her elbows on the bar. Across from her, leaning one hip against the prep counter, John had to stop and blink. The woman at the kitchen counter was not a double to Kate herself, but they were very clearly variations on a theme. Like her daughter, Lisa Katane was remarkably tall, only a few centimeters shorter than Kate herself. Her face was built along very similar lines, with a straight and slightly upturned nose, high cheekbones, a strong chin, and large, expressive eyes. She had the usual marks of middle age in her face—slight crow's feet at the corners of her eyes, frown and laugh lines on her forehead and cheeks— but they added to her beauty rather than detracting from it, giving her a look of distinguished maturity. Where she and Kate differed most was in coloration. Instead of Kate's fair, golden complexion, Lisa's skin was a warm olive shade. Her hair was black, with scattered threads of gray, and fell in gentle waves to the middle of her back. And where Kate's eyes were a pale green, Lisa's were a darker greenish hazel. She turned those eyes on John as he entered the room, and her expression was at once warm and calculating, as if she had taken John's measure in an instant, saw him for who he was, and somehow liked him anyway. John, of course, was an incubus, sexuality came to him as naturally as breathing, and desire was always close to the surface of his thoughts but the stab of reflexive lust that ran through him at the sight of Lisa Catane left him blindsided. For a moment, his voice and manners failed him, and he just stared at her in frank admiration. His cock throbbed and swelled, pressing uncomfortably against the fabric of his boxer briefs. "'So here he is,' Lisa said, a wry smile tugging at the corners of her lips." She gave John a brief but polite bow, which he quickly but belatedly returned. He had not even finished straightening when she strode toward him, her arms out wide. Welcome to Alamar. Do you hug? We're huggy people here. I... yes, I hug, John said, finding his voice. He wrapped his arms around her, and it took all his self-control to keep his hands away from her shapely ass. She slid her own arms around his lower torso and squeezed him tightly before letting go. John met Kate's eyes over Lisa's shoulder. She was watching him very intently, and while she was grinning, there was something sharp and dangerous in the edges of that smile. John could clearly read the thoughts behind that expression. I love you, John, but don't you even think about it. John winced and looked away, a flush creeping into his cheeks. Too late. Lisa released him and took a step back, fixing those gorgeous hazel eyes on him again. From up close, John saw that they were heterochromic, with a lighter green around the outer edges and a warm brown around the pupils. By the lady, he thought, every part of this woman is a work of art. But, work of art or not, she was also a person. Not to mention your girlfriend's mother, you idiot. So John pushed back the Daedric side of his nature, and told his libido to shut up and go sit in the corner. I'm the one in charge here, asshole. This lady is off-limits. I'm so glad you could join us, Lisa said, still smiling at him like he wasn't making a fool of himself. Kate has been very mysterious about you, so we're looking forward to getting to know you. From over in the corner, John's libido said that getting to know Lisa sounded like a great idea. John ignored it. Um, likewise, John said, with a smile that he hoped he had kept from becoming a leer. I hear a lot of good things about both of you. Lisa cocked her head to look at Sam— whom John suddenly remembered was still standing behind him. "'You hear that, hun?' she said, her voice dropping to a stage whisper. "'Our daughter's saying good things about us.' "Uh "'Uh-oh,' Sam said, in mock alarm. "'Isn't that against the rules? I think that's against the rules.' Kate tossed back her head and threw her hands in the air. "'I know!' I'm the toughest nails police detective with a healthy, stable relationship with my family. Don't tell anyone or they'll kick me out of the union. Lisa grinned at this. She half turned toward Kate so her look could encompass all of them. So, dinner will be ready in about half an hour. Can I interest anyone in a drink while we wait? And that's the end of Chapter 5. Come back next time when Sam enlists Kate's help to solve a mystery with one of his students. Anne Lamott said, The society to which we belong seems to be dying, or is already dead. I don't mean to sound dramatic, but clearly the dark side is rising. Things could not have been more odd and frightening in the Middle Ages. But the tradition of artists will continue, no matter what form the society takes. And this is another reason to write. People need us, to mirror for them and for each other without distortion. Not to look around and say, look at yourselves, you idiots, but to say, this is who we are. So let's see what I found in the mirror this week. Here's your weekly writing report. This update covers the week of May 16th to May 22nd. I wrote 3,082 words this week, over the course of 4.5 hours, for an average writing speed of 685 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 35 days without breaking my chain. This week I continued work on Honor Bound. For most of the week I thought I was writing in Chapter 5, but the scene kept stretching longer and longer, so I ended up splitting it into Chapters 5 and 6. Up to now, I've been switching viewpoints with every new chapter, but I need to stay in Honor's head as she makes her formal debut before the Duke's court. The debutante's ball is a real thing that happens in the aristocracies of Great Britain and parts of the United States, especially in the South, where a small number of rich families have held power since colonial times. The ball is a chance for young, upper-class women to be recognized as adults And thus is eligible for marriage. It's also a place to be seen and to meet prospective gentlemen who might be interested in courting them. For Metamore, I decided to expand the debutante tradition to all children men, women, and androgynes and to make it the official start of the social season. It's the first time that young nobles are allowed to socialize with one another in an adult setting and for people like Honor, who were educated by tutors out in the country, it's their first real chance to make friends of their own class and their own age. The season is another tradition I've borrowed from Britain. Historically, Parliament was only in session for part of the year. Members of the ruling class would come to London to do the business of politics, and their wives and adult children would come with them. The season was marked by a string of parties, concerts, art exhibitions, theatrical productions, and sporting events, which gave the gentry the opportunity to socialize with their peers, forge alliances, and make favorable matches for their children. When the season ended, generally in August, the lords and ladies would return to their country estates for the hunting season. If you've watched Downton Abbey, you've seen a little of what the season was like— though that show takes place just as the tradition was entering its decline. In Metamore City, in 1894, the season is still going strong, and the political machinations taking place in the Metamorian Senate will be an important subplot to the book. The manuscript is now over 11,000 words. And now, the feedback.
1: Hi Chris, and hi Metamore. This phone call has been a long time coming. I have been very occupied for about five and a half years with college and usually on breaks. I have these fits and starts where I catch up with the podcast and any audio books that you've made. And I've been privileged enough to uh been able to get through divine intervention and the lost and the least and things unseen. I've been listening recently to your incredible short story, The Dark Lord, Steve, which was hysterical. And I just started on Homecoming. So I wanted to call, not because I had a question, just to give you some feedback from a longtime fan and tell you that your stories are so incredibly written and they're so well thought out and laid out that you often go somewhere I'm not expecting, but you also never take me somewhere that's disorienting. So... I just really appreciate your writing and the whole Metamorph community, and I just wanted to say keep up the good work. Thanks again, and I'm looking forward to the next installment. Okay, thanks. Bye. Karen.
0: Thank you very much, Karen. I'm so glad that you're enjoying the stories. And congratulations on finishing university. That's super exciting. Robbie Harris asks, All the morphs we have seen or at least all the ones I can think of in the stories I have read, are mammals. Is that a limitation of the curse, or is that just the stories we have seen? Hi, Robbie. Left to its own devices, the curse does do forms other than mammals. In the original Metamorkeep Keep stories, there were cursed individuals who became monitor lizards, hawks, dragons, an ibis, an ant, and even a talking tree. Once Kaia got control of the curse, though, and people could choose their own template species, these non-mammalian species almost completely disappeared. My reasoning for this is simple. Non-mammalian bodies are just too alien for humans to adapt to comfortably. The weird blending of mammal and non-mammal characteristics meant that these theriomorphs were generally infertile, even with the help of magic. That means that there were no second- or third-generation theriomorphs being born pre-cursed, as happened to many of the mammal theriomorphs, And it wasn't just about reproduction. Almost every aspect of their physiology was unfamiliar, not just to human doctors, but even to veterinarians who specialized in those template species. Every individual found that the curse had settled the compromise between mammal and non-mammal anatomy differently, so each person became a unique sort of biological miracle. That made it very difficult for modern medicine to help them. They got diseases that no one else did, and if they needed surgery, the doctors had a much higher chance of screwing up because their anatomy was so bizarre. It wasn't good for people psychologically, either. Mammal brains are all very similar to one another, but the brains of birds and reptiles are quite different even for very intelligent species like the corvids. In the world of metamor, the human soul is a distinct, detectable spiritual essence that links with the body through the mediation of the brain, and mapping that soul onto a bird or reptile brain just isn't an easy fit. For all these reasons, the Office of Curse Administration now strongly discourages the adoption of non-mammal forms— A person who insists on taking one is going to have to go through quite a lot of counseling or sign some pretty big liability waivers before the office will even process their paperwork. Fortunately, the problems with non-mammal morphs are pretty well known in modern Metamore, so they don't have to turn people down all that often. Thanks for the question! If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show... Send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author chris lester, the fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and our Discord server is Metamor City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2019 and 2020 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvette Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.